Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Excuse me. Can I hold stand over there, sir? Uh, no, if you would stand here. Okay. If you need a yeah, I'll probably. Grab one that'd be great. Okay. Well, it's so good to see Sorry, all of you. No, no, no. That's all right. So good to see all of you. Um, I usually have a very loud, robust, and even annoying voice. A loud, robust, and even annoying voice. You could ask my dear wife Sharon about that, but I've developed a little bug, so my throat's a little sore. So you'll have to try to listen uh, on purpose today. Um, I've spoken all over the place, but I've only spoken, or actually I don't think I've ever spoken before in Oklahoma. So this is a great privilege to see all of you and to meet all of you, particularly a state that didn't have a single county vote for Barack Obama. Now, you might have heard that that's not quite true in my home state of California. <laughs> but there are a few Christian conservatives left in uh, California, a few of us, and I'm living proof of that. Um, <clears throat> so glad to see my old friend, <coughs> Lowell Lefebvre, of many years. And I appreciate him and his family to have met Charlie and Michael today. Uh, so... I uh, generally don't talk very long, and I'm not going to talk today, but I am pretty succinct. So that means you have to listen carefully. Uh, I'm asking the question today, and I'm hoping to answer it, why Christian culture? I'd like us today to rejoice over our uh, recent political victories, particularly those ones in the last 20 years. Uh, in this state that Charlie was enumerating to me just a few minutes ago, it truly is amazing what you've been able to accomplish. But I'd like us to step back for a moment and take a, a longer and broader and deeper view of our culture. Um, our culture will have a much a greater impact on our society than e any recent political victories or losses. I'm asking us to think culturally today and not specifically politically. By thinking culturally, I mean thinking about how we as humans created in God's image work at stewarding this world in which God has placed us. To work in exercising dominion over God's creation by obeying his commands. Of course, both Christians and unbelievers engage in this stewardship, this, this cultural activity. That, in fact, is the great conflict in our world today. Two kinds of people with two very different spiritual natures and fundamentally conflicting convictions, both of them shaping the world intentionally or not. Each of us, each of us, Christian and non-Christian, approaches all these cultural tasks, politics, education, science, the arts, music, technology, movie-making, and all other cultural activity in two distinctively different ways. Now, the issue can't be reduced to how Christians think and act versus how non-Christians think and act. Why? Well, because many Christians don't think and act like Christians. You, you've noticed that, right? Even here in Oklahoma, right? And to be honest, many non-Christians sometimes, sometimes, do think and act like Christians. The actual issue then is this, what does culture look like with both, when both Christians and non-Christians are true to their basic condition? I'd like to suggest that in recent years, 
non-Christians have become more consistent with their basic spiritual condition than Christians have with theirs. It's not just that there are more unbelievers in our country. There are more unbelievers who are self-consciously thinking and acting like unbelievers. And when they self-consciously think and act like unbelievers, and when there are a lot of them, as there are in the United States, they tend to create an anti-Christian culture. I have just given to you in the last five minutes the main reason why our present culture is so depraved. I've just told you why it is. Oh, and it is depraved. Christians in the United States over 50 years old, some way over like Charlie, way, way, (laughs) way over 50 years old, are likely astonished at the moral transformation in their own lifetimes. Same-sex marriage is legal in many states and more all the time. And the Supreme Court appears ready to allow this unprecedented view of marriage to stand. I pray they won't but it appears they might. Pornography is pervasive. Not limited now to seedy adult bookstores, but about three clicks away from your computer or your smartphone. (coughs) Excuse me. The CDC claims that in 2010 there were 765,651 legal abortions in the United States. That statistic is almost certainly too low, but even if it's correct, it's still staggering. This transformation is true also in economics, which is in fact a moral category. In recent years, nearly half of the U.S. population has gotten government financial assistance of some kind. The federal government now controls about one-sixth of our economy in commandeering health care, or is about to. People sometimes complain about greedy American corporations, but in the United States, we have the highest corporate tax rate in the world. How about many people complaining about a greedy government? Just as troubling, perhaps, is the quantifiable secularization of our culture. Radically secular. Particularly on the coasts. Not so much here in the heartland, though it's here too, as you know, but particularly on the coasts. This uh, moral transformation is evident. We might ask ourselves, why and how did it happen? Why and how did it happen? Now, it won't suffice to answer that man's sinful, because man's been sinful for a very, very, very long time, correct? The reality of human sinfulness isn't an adequate explanation. It's difficult to answer why and how this change came about without understanding what society was like before it came about. One way of getting that understanding is to recognize that the United States, at its founding, and especially in our pre-national colonial period, reflected a Christian consensus, a Christian culture. A residue of that culture survived into the 20th century, and some of it survives even now in Oklahoma and Kansas. Not much in California, but a little more here. That culture, however imperfect, was a Christian culture. Now, we need to understand what this doesn't mean, because we get falsely accused sometimes. It doesn't mean that most of the settlers on this continent originally were Christians, though that certainly may have been the case. That most were acting like Christians almost all the time. I'm sure that's not true. Or that society's laws and forms of government were all explicitly biblical. Explicitly. That's certainly not true either. 
There's plenty of non-Christianity in the States. No, to refer to Christian culture means something else. It means that the cultural architecture of our society, both physical and non-physical, is shaped by Christian truth. That's what it means. Christian culture means that in society, man is treated as he was created <coughs> in God's image. <coughs> Individuals greet one another and treat one another with dignity and respect. The lives of the most vulnerable in society, unborn children and the elderly, are granted strict legal protection as the Bible demands. Care of the poor and foreigners is on the minds and hearts of those with greater resources, not so they can be cared for by an impersonal bureaucratic government, but by the highly personal charity of those whom God has blessed financially. Christian culture means education is grounded in the transcendent truth of God's revelation and creation in the Bible. Children are educated to understand that they were born into God's good world and how they're to think and act within that world. Christian culture means that marriage and sexual morality are bounded by God's standards. God's gracious law alone brings peace and delight. You don't get to make up your own sexual laws, which again and again brings sadness and tragedy. Christian culture means that civil law is derived from God's revelation, not from the greatest good for the greatest number, not from majority opinion, not from elite Eastern law schools, not from abstract secular human rights, but from God's revelation in the Bible and in nature. Christian culture means that the government's role is limited to norms and revelation, to punish externally wicked, externally wicked evildoers and protect the externally obedient. In the language of the early U.S., it means protecting life, liberty, and property. The role of the government is not to create the perfectly just society, equalizing incomes, guaranteeing that everybody enjoys a certain standard of living, assuring health care, forcing employers to hire a specific percentage of women or African Americans or gays or disabled or 18-year-olds or 62-year-olds. In Christian culture, the task of the state is severely limited. Christian culture means that the arts bring glory to God. Movie makers employ their amazing visuals to tell stories that accurately reflect the Christian worldview of creation, fall, and redemption. <coughs> Popular musicians write and perform music that is beautiful and melodious and inspiring, with lyrics and harmony echoing Christian truth. Architects design edifices that duplicate creational patterns of aesthetics and order and harmony and tr transcendence. In other words, very different from most of the arts that we encounter today. In these spheres and others, Christian culture manifests God's gracious, kind will for man. Now, you might have noticed that this description of Christian culture is not an accurate description of our present culture. In fact, in many cases, our culture is virtually the opposite. That is to say, our culture is no longer Christian, or only marginally so. We have drifted from our heritage. In some cases, we've scampered from our heritage. And in abandoning God's truth for our culture, we have abandoned God. Now, there's one of the main points I want to make, and I won't be too much longer. There is a price to pay for this abandonment. 
know this, we live in a God-rigged universe. God loves man so much that he will not allow man to destroy himself by completely abandoning his maker. We read in Genesis 6 that the depravity of the Noahic world was so great that God regretted making man. And he destroyed all humanity except Noah and his family with a flood. But he promised never to do it again. Man's depravity is self-destructive. In his love for man, therefore, God inflicts consequences so that man will not annihilate himself. Sin should be painful. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. You can't get away with sin, including cultural sin. Sin costs. That cost surrounds us everywhere in our culture. Let me mention quickly some ways you might not have thought about. Uh, It's hard to argue that the greatest cultural costs that we suffer today have been exacted by the sexual revolution. Have you ever thought about this? It's remarkable how the vast majority of the controversial social issues today are a direct product of the sexual revolution. Have you thought of that? I just wrote some down here quickly. Teen pregnancy, rampant divorce, abortion, parental notification laws, feminism, egg harvesting, Artificial insemination, sperm donation, pornography, in vitro fertilization, homosexuality, same-sex marriage. It is truly remarkable. We simply can't imagine our contemporary Western culture apart from the sexual revolution. (coughs) We think, of course, of the suffering suffering of unborn children and their butchery and abortion. That one's easy to understand and is perhaps the most tragic of all. But aside from the butchered, unborn children, the most injurious consequences of the sexual revolution have fallen on women and born children. Ironically, because the fiercest advocates of the sexual revolution, the social progressives, the liberals we call them, constantly profess care for the weakest and most vulnerable, don't they? Yet, as with the case, as in the case with abortion, their advocacy of the sexual revolution really disproves their concern. Women want a committed, loving man to care for them and their children. The sexual revolution often turns the man into a freewheeling, irresponsible playboy. Women want men to do their fair share of domestic duties, but the sexual revolution gives them no incentive to stay around the house except to play video games. Women want romance, but the sexual revolution invites pornography that objectifies women and makes the female a Gnostic, unattainable, airbrushed, digital photo that no actual woman in the world could ever live up to. But porn has wreaked more havoc than objectification. It's degenerated into an utter degradation of women. Children haven't fared any better under this sexual revolution regime. Illegitimacy and divorce have wreaked havoc on children, leaving them often fatherless, splitting their time between two parents. Adult men seem to have fared the best under the sexual revolution regime. This, again, is ironic, isn't it? Most social progressives are also feminists who despise any hierarchy. But if there ever was a male hierarchy in the contemporary world, the sexual revolution has produced it. Men get the freedom of recreational sex without commitment to a wife and children, and they get porn without social stigma. Men get all of the fun and none of the guilt, 
Let the women and the children suffer the consequences. Yet men too do suffer consequences. The irresponsibility saw spawned by the sexual revolution has bequeathed a generation of grown-up, effeminate, juvenile males who can't hold a job longer than a year, who won't cultivate a woman's love, who won't spend time rearing children, who know more about digital gaming than about moral, moral character. They suffer biological consequences, too, and not merely sexually transmitted diseases. Did you know that neuropsychiatry is showing that extensive exposure to pornography rewires our brain for sexual dissatisfaction? Wall Street Journal writes, repetitive viewing of pornography resets neural pathways, creating the need for a type and level of stimulation not satiable in real life. The user is thrilled and then doomed. In the sexual revolution, our society gained its liberation from God's good plan for sex. But it's a liberation that has morally enslaved us. But we've lived amid another revolution, I'll mention quickly, an economic revolution. Economics, I said earlier, is a moral issue. It's not an issue over which good Christians may simply agree to disagree. You know, it is remarkable how many Christians oppose abortion and same-sex marriage, but also refuse to oppose Obamacare and state welfare programs. <coughs> Apparently, they're willing to defend the fifth commandment. You may not murder, but not the eighth. You may not steal. Theft is not somehow sanctified because it's practiced by the state or federal government. As our culture becomes more secular, it becomes more socialist. Socialism, you see, is a form of secular providence. When we no longer trust God to provide for us, we turn to the state as an all-sufficient deity. This is why increasingly secular societies are also increasingly socialistic societies. And Charlie, I'm glad that you criticized our secular libertarian friends there. Our secular libertarian friends may resent this fact, but secularization of society does not produce the secular free market society envisioned by the Ayn Rand variety. It produces the socialist society far closer to the Karl Marx variety. But there is a moral cost to economic rigging no less offensive than state theft. It's the quest for utopia. Leftists always seem busy coercing tax revenue in order to create the just, the equal society. Some citizens are too rich, others are too poor, and the job of the state is to create greater equality. That's the fundamental tenet of atheistic Marxism that even professed Christians like Jim Wallace and Sojourners have purchased stock in. It's a form of economic rigging that the Bible prohibits, and it has costs. I want to mention one of them you might not have thought about. Maybe some of you have seen Angelo Cotevello's book, The Character of Nations. It shows that a nation's laws and customs tend to create a particular kind of citizen. He argued and provided evidence that people in the Soviet Union, for example, had different aspirations, different behavior, different habits than people in the United States. This wasn't a racial issue. This was a cultural issue. The laws and customs of the U.S. incentivized and de-incentivized forms of behavior different from those in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union created a different kind of person. <coughs> Economic rigging in the United States 
is now gradually creating a new kind of individual. This individual from his and her childhood feels entitled to a certain lifestyle, to a specific level of education, and to a particular quality of health care. In previous generations within a Christian culture, it was understood that these enjoyments of life were the benefits of hardworking, wise investment. You work hard, you're faithful, you obey God, and you get things. Today, however, they've been simply reduced to entitlement. Hard work and wise investing have been pulled out of the equation. Now, since economic rigging has delivered on these benefits for the time being, individuals have come to expect it. But not just expect. It's created a new kind of individual. I mean, a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings in our culture. One for whom wisdom and intelligence and delayed gratification and pride of ownership and concern for future generations are irrelevant. Now, it's easy to blame the 20-somethings who refuse to leave their parents' home and get a job and support themselves while expecting free cable TV and Internet access and tickets to the latest Coldplay concert. And yet, while they do share responsibility, much of the blame must be laid at the feet of our culture and its government. Economic rigging has had a hand in creating these 20-somethings. What is the panacea, the cure? I would suggest that it's a return to Christian culture. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker or the billboard. Jesus is the answer. Ever seen that? Cynical agnostics will sometimes respond, well, what's the question? (laughs) And my response to that is, it doesn't matter. Jesus is ultimately the answer to every question. And that answer is truer than even many Christians suppose. Jesus isn't simply the answer to personal guilt or addiction or despair. He's also the answer to homosexualized Hollywood and activist courts and runaway inflation and Obamacare. We Christians need to get over the idea that public life, public life, should or can be religiously neutral. Or that God has one standard for the family and church and another standard for public life. He doesn't. Jesus Christ is Lord of all things, and his word is the authoritative word for all aspects of creation. Our Western society is profoundly diseased, and Jesus is the only permanent cure. As it relates to society, Christian culture is the only cure. How? Let me just tell you quickly three foundational ways, and I'll be done. First, Christian culture reflects confident truth in an age of chaotic relativism. Relativism is the popular idea that there are no objective standards of right and wrong. There's no single truth or morality to which all of us are accountable. Each of us gets to make up his own standard of right and wrong. Of course, nobody actually lives that way, right? Everybody that says that's hypocritical. They're what I like to call cafeteria relativists. They're relativists when it suits them. The college sophomore that spews relativism in the dormitory nonetheless strangely gets mad when somebody has the audacity to steal his new iPhone. Relativism may be a creed, but it's not a way of life. Christian culture is the antithesis of relativism. It declares that man must live by God's loving, gracious revelation in the Bible. The Bible doesn't just reveal a way of salvation. The Bible prescribes a way of life. 
This is what God's moral law is all about. And not just for Christians either. For everyone. Christian culture doesn't profess to do away with sin. But it does profess to eliminate moral chaos. We all have a standard that we can adhere to. The word of God. Second. Christian culture offers liberating redemption in a time of enslaving depravity. Sin enslaves. Did you know that? Sin enslaves. Paul makes this point very clear in Romans chapter 7. Now there he's talking about the individual. But earlier in chapter 1, he points out that sin enslaves entire societies. He talks specifically about homosexuality and lesbianism. But the enslaving power of sin isn't limited to those sexual sins. Sin brings us into bondage. Jesus came to deliver humanity from sin's power, but not just as individuals. That's the point I want to make to you today. Not just for individuals. <clears throat> Jehovah made clear to ancient Israel that if they all would place, or many of them at least, would place hope in him, if they'd love him with all of their heart, he'd grant them as a nation great cultural victory and liberty. Know this, God doesn't just save individuals. He also saves cultures. The reason the United States today is enslaved to debt and consumerism and drugs and pornography and entertainment and video games and government welfare programs, the reason, I say, is that our nation has turned away from the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ and his word. But if our society repents and returns to the trained God, he promises to liberate us and restore us to a place of great glory. Amen. Finally... <clears throat> Christian culture inspires joyous hope amid an environment of cynical despair. One of the most reliable indexes of a culture's condition is its view of the future. Christianity has a bright view of the future. Not that there won't be hardships, but a bright view of the future in spite of present difficulties. Because the Bible tells us that God is working out his purposes in history and his kingdom will gradually expand despite all satanic opposition. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Postmodernism today has turned away from both Christian optimism as well as the Enlightenment's optimism to despair. There aren't any objective standards. There's nothing to keep us from falling into barbarism. Therefore, the attitude is we should simply try to enjoy ourselves while we can, if we can. This is true in a lot of music. I was thinking of a saw the lyrics of a recent song by that uh, wonderful artist, Lady Gaga. She writes, bleach out all the dark, I'll swallow each peroxide shot. Volumes, I know, will love and save me from myself. Maybe I'll just clean the expletive off these fancy shoes. I'll be a princess, die and die with you. Wish that I was strong, wish that I was wrong, wish that I could cope, but I took pills and left a note. My, how encouraging that is. <laughs> Suicide has become a theme of musicians for generations, but the despair and darkness of modern music is a reflection of the biblical aphorism, he who fails to find me, God and his wisdom, injures himself, all they that hate me love death. <clears throat> In radical contrast, Christian culture inspires great hope for the future. History is not an endless repetitive cycle of rises and falls, rises and falls, rises and falls. It's a God-governed odyssey moving from creation to fall to redemption to consummation. God's kingdom in Jesus Christ is not static. It is dynamic. 
It does suffer from diabolical attack. Sometimes it seems it's almost overthrown, but it marches on to destined victory. Never forget that. Secularization, the turning away from the triune God and his word has infected our culture with a deep spiritual disease. Jesus Christ and his way of culture is the only cure. A final word. An understandable and rational response to all of this pervasive secular disease is to sort of quarantine ourselves in our families and in most our churches. Thank God this group doesn't do that. Their attitude is even though our society may become more secular, we can become more Christian by withdrawing and hiding and protecting ourselves. I believe this view is not only theologically mistaken, but also dangerously delusional. The church should indeed impact society, but society sadly has a way of impacting the church. You might have noticed that. The sociologist Peter Berger popularized the idea of plausibility structures. What counts as legitimate and illegitimate in a society? The real and the unreal in a culture. When secularists create a comprehensive plausibility structure, which is what they're trying to do now, it means that Christian truth is not so much persecuted as it is just meaningless. It doesn't matter if the church stands up for biblical marriage or if the wider culture defines marriage in radically different ways. What the church says doesn't matter anymore. Trying to restore biblical marriage in that situation would be akin to trying to restore the 18th century French monarchy. People wouldn't fight you. They'd simply look at you as a nutty quack. That's why we can't afford to fix just one thing. Know that. Take that aphorism out with you. We can't afford to fix just one thing. We can't afford to fix the family and church, but not the culture. These institutions are all interrelated, and each one affects and infects the other. What our children and grandchildren consider normal will be shaped not only by what they hear and see in the family and church, but also in the surrounding culture. And that's why we need a Christian culture. Abandoning the culture to Satan and to the secularists is to allow them a hand in deciding what is normal for our children and grandchildren. If you believe in Jesus Christ in the Bible, I ask you humbly but passionately, join me in the task of working wherever God's placed you to create Christian culture. By the power of the Spirit, restore Christian truth, whether in automobile repair or a software architect, or in primary education, or an executive in the boardroom, or in the farming fields, or in the state house. Christian culture is the cure to our modern spiritual disease, and there is simply no other cure. Thank you very much. Stay, stay oh.